Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. All right. Back at it for another pod blog. Pod blog? Blog pod? Which one do you think sounds better? I think it's tomatoes, tomatoes. It doesn't really matter. What matters is this blog. And it is a topic that I've become obsessed with of late. Really inspired by Michael Easter's comfort crisis, but really doing it all my life. You know, this idea of getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I mean, I was a competitive long distance runner since the time I was nine. <laughs> and there are both pros and cons to that. Uh, definitely took a toll on my mental health, constantly competing and, and managing you know, that type of commitment as a young person. However, it also bolstered my mental health and, and made me mentally tough. You know, I was doing ice baths when I was 13. 12, 13 years old to recover from training sessions. So I have this familiar familiarity with being uncomfortable, but I never really had, you know, the parlance, um, you know, the, uh, the lexicon to describe it in any way. And, and nor did that matter to me. It was just a habit. However, as life goes on and the creature comforts kind of creep in, you realize you kind of do need to build, you know, some 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 verbiage as to, to to reminding yourself to continue to be uncomfortable, to the importance of being uncomfortable and what it gives to us. So that's really the premise of this blog and uh, a few blogs that I've I've written. This one in particular, interestingly enough, is an excerpt from. My new book that's set to release in 2024 called Good Boy, Bad Boy, at least that's the working title. And it's another one of those blogs that uh, was an excerpt that was taken out or ultimately or greatly, greatly, greatly modified from the actual book draft. So I liked it. I wanted to still share it, even if it didn't end up in the book. And that's what I'll do here. So getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Little beads of blistering hot sweat bubbled up and dripped down my red face. The desert heat was sweltering. My heart heaved in my chest as my lungs pulled in the thin, dry air. Through my squinting eyes, I could see my coach walking toward me as I sprawled on the grass next to the finish line. Admittedly, it was all a little dramatic. Finish the race, flailing and gasping in pain, only to stumble 20 feet to collapse as if I'd been shot by the starting gun. My coach hated that stuff. His ominous shadow blotted out the sun like a god. Maybe I died. This was it. I'd finally gone beyond my physical limits, somehow finished the race, died, and was now at the pearly gates. All the blood-curdling training sessions and muscle-searing races I'd endured had led to this moment. In the last two years, I'd been depressed, endlessly anxious, 
and worried about winning, losing, and the trajectory of my running career. I'd won some big races, received a scholarship, even made a few national teams, and been honored with awards, press, and scholarships. If validation led to a feeling of self-worth, I'd had my share in spades, and it hadn't made a damn bit of difference. In the past year, I'd had, an inju- I'd had injury after injury, and in the months leading up to this particular race, I tried to come back from yet another injury too quickly and was running on a stress fracture. I was still chasing the ghost of approval. The Reaper had arrived. Once I was politely told to get my ass up off the grass, we slowly walked a few laps together. A coach, a good coach, isn't just there to make you a better athlete. They're there to make you a better person. They are there to call you out when you're in a bad way. My coach knew me well. He cared about my well-being beyond the fleeting accolades I'd helped add to the track club's name. My running stride was smooth, long, and fluid, but inside I was a twisted mess. Change was needed, not a coaching change, a life change. The cool-down is both necessary for the well-being of muscles and a tradition of sorts. Following the adrenaline dump of the race, a light-hearted, more foul-hearted, depending on how the race went, mental reflection helps pass the rest of the built-up energy and emotions so one can move on. Following that chat with my coach, I cooled down by jogging into the sage-covered hills that rose out of the valley. I was in Kamloops, British Columbia. Maybe it was the delicate aroma of sage or being doused with vitamin D or the soul-opening feeling of being in a more expansive place. Regardless, as I jogged along the narrow trail in the setting sun with grasshoppers crisscrossing my path in scattered flight, I realized I was in need of a much longer cool down than just this little post-race jog. It was at this moment that I decided to leave the sport that had defined me for over a decade forever, or just for an extended period of time, in order to recalibrate and reconnect with my own inner goodness. Most cool downs I'd done throughout my career around 20 or 30 minutes. I don't know how long I lingered on my slow rhythmic jog with the heat of the desert still in the air. By the end, I was simply looping the inside of the track in the dark under the stadium lights. The moment reminded me of those goodbye embraces in the movies where the person doesn't want to let go. Like most things in life, there was a silver lining. My running career came to an unhappy ending of sorts. However, in the months and years that followed, I came to appreciate and reconnect with aspects of the sport that had become burdensome. I probably should not have competitively run for as long as I did. It had mostly made me miserable, and I had not stuck with it for the right reasons. That said, sticking with it had taught me a great deal about being comfortable being uncomfortable. Whether it was the discomfort of a training session or sacrificing certain pleasures to commit to my purpose or feeling crippling nerves and still showing up to perform. Ever since, I was never afraid of stepping into a new and challenge and uncomfortable things. As my life progressed, I thrived on the salto mortale. I hope I said that right. A beautiful Italian term meaning dangerous leap into the void that comes with that oh-so-fluttery feeling we get before we know if we're actually ready to commit. 
I had done it so many times. It was second nature. I thrived on pushing myself and my experiences to the edge of what could have been deemed impossible. Starting new businesses and industries I knew nothing about, traveling to the fringes of the developing world, even stepping into intense personal development through vulnerable exploration of my own inner demons and insecurities. It wasn't that I was sadistic, taking pleasure in pain and discomfort. Maybe I wasn't totally not sadistic either. However, I learned that, that there is a reward in struggling and working through discomfort, that many burdens were actually good burdens, as friend and author Christina Crook put it. The reward for willingly struggling against resistance of any kind is a greater strength, earned skill set, and confidence to face all that life throws at us. This, however, was the opposite of what I was seeing in society at large. In the age of ultimate conveniences, as Michael Easter so aptly puts it, we are in a comfort crisis. Too often, to feel bad is bad. To feel unsafe is bad. To have to struggle too long to climb the proverbial corporate ladder is bad. People that don't listen to their teachers or fall in line with what society wants of them are bad. Being bored or even boring is bad. To not be able to live in total comfort eating at our favorite restaurant anytime we want is bad. We are so fucking comfortable nowadays that, according to Easter, we tend to take for granted how good we have it. We are surrounded by expeditious conveniences and comfort and our Feelings are protected by overbearing helicopter parents, meddling governments, and societal structures. To cope with discomforts is all too easy. Turn on Netflix or Apple TV, order takeout from a fast food delivery app, ghost the Zoom meeting due to technical difficulties because you're not feeling up to it, listen to another podcast instead of actually diving into the work you really need to do. When we can't stand silence, we have Spotify to fill the void. When we need a pause, we instead take on more work. I'm not throwing shade at modern conveniences, technologies, and quality entertainment. A little of all of the above is great from time to time, but we've lost or are losing an important aspect of reliance in this comfort crisis. It has become, this, as the saying goes, too much of a good thing. Often I find with myself and my coaching clients that there is a little nagging voice inside us letting us know when we need to change it up, to push ourselves, to break the comfortably convenient routines and habits that embed themselves into our daily lives, to curb the excuses we make for ourselves. This inner wisdom is speaking to us from our ancestrals, ancestors reminding us who we are and how we can live like a tether to our primitive instincts that's kept us alive and enabled us to thrive and achieve the very comforts we enjoy today. This wisdom warns against the philosophical and intellectual movement that champions the idea that widely available sophisticated technologies alone can and should improve the human condition. We have fundamental inherent capabilities. Nowadays, we depend less and less on those abilities and instead increasingly depend on data, words, numbers, internet connections, and pixels. We look at struggle as bad, but our ancestors struggled to survive every day, and that made them strong. 
This isn't to say that, for instance, getting teased at school or a nasty tweet directed your way is good. They're not. But they do serve as opportunities for us to overcome the likely negative emotional surge that accompanies them. This isn't to say that getting into a small physical tiff at school is good either. Learning how to solve this problem yourself versus a teacher or parent stepping in teaches us how to fend for ourselves and solve our own problems. Of course, we need to integrate these lessons so they don't have negative consequences, which is exactly the point, not to avoid them. Struggling for success makes us appreciate it more. We can feel the positive and affirmative belief that we deserve something, like a job role or success, but that doesn't mean we're entitled to it. Even if that promotion, for example, was just handed to us, we may not really appreciate it because we didn't struggle to acquire it, or we may not be ready to handle it because we didn't go through the process of growth required to earn it. Even at the most basic human level, physical struggle has been removed. The literal physical struggle of going somewhere or getting something you need, like food, for instance, takes little to no effort to take. No need to walk, no need to hunt or grow or forage for our own food means being less active. This can lead not only to physical degradation, but mental health problems over time. As Michael Easter points out, we are moving about 14 times less than our ancestors. We spend 95% of our time indoors and spend 11 hours and six minutes a day engaged with digital media. So we went from never having this digital media in our lives to now it's essentially become our lives. And that's had consequences for our attention, our awareness, how we spend our time, and also our interactions with others. Things have really changed, and we're too comfortable now. End quote. Similarly, it's harder to appreciate something as simple as food on our dinner plate because we didn't necessarily have to starve or struggle for it in the same way. As an aside, this is one of the reasons my wife and I have moved to a farm, started growing our own vegetables, and I started hunting for our protein. Whether we were successful or not was somewhat besides the point. I wanted to fully experience the challenge of bringing food from the farm and forest to the table. With hunting, this often meant cold, miserable, and bug-infested weeks in the bush. The heavy emotion of taking an animal's life, the physical exhaustion of getting it out of the woods, and the, can we just be done with this so I can go take a shower, agony of skinning, and butchering the animal so it looks just like those packages of steak that magically appear on our store shelves. All that said, of course, there remain plenty of trips to the grocery store and restaurant visits. Our comfort crisis has led us to record-breaking obesity, addiction, and mental health issues in North America. Yet, as Michael Easter points out, scientists are finding that certain discomforts protect us from physical and psychological problems like obesity, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, depression, and anxiety, and even more fundamental issues like feeling a lack of meaning and purpose. 
A few years ago, the itch for struggle in the form of physical exhaustion started to rear its head again. Answering the call came by the way of extensive hikes, runs, and even workouts in the majestic and treacherous mountains of British Columbia and bathing in icy mountain rivers. These were all things I'd done as a runner, but this time, without a stopwatch, specified distance, and often even a trail. I learned this was called a misogi. Officially, misogi refers to a Shinto water cleansing that involves standing under a waterfall. However, according to Dr. Marcus Elliott, it has taken on new meaning. A misogi, says Dr. Elliott, is not about physical accomplishment, but rather what we are willing to put ourselves through mentally and spiritually to be a better human. Misogi is a way we can elicit something ancient. Think of long walkabouts, or in a more extreme sense, spearing a lion like the Maasai warriors in Kenya, or wearing a glove filled with some bullet ants like the, like the tribes in Brazil, the rites of passage traditional cultures undertook. I managed to concoct a similar, albeit less bullet ant challenge, a grueling goat hunt in the mountains of my home province. On this hunt, my cousin and I had been in the mountains for the better part of a week. After rising around 5 a.m. one morning, we ascended from the valley into the razor-sharp peaks where we'd seen goats the night before. Vigilant were our steps as we rose into the thinner air with the fragile, rocky ground often retreating below us, vertigo creeping into our veins. It was not long until we realized the obvious that we were not goats, and reaching them was a death wish. Frustrated, we packed up our gear to make our way back off the mountain while some daylight still remained. Trudging through seemingly endless piles of grizzly scat, prickly devil's club, and blowdown, that's dead trees blown down by the wind, to no avail, we raced against both the darkening sky and a looming storm. Soon, the clouds opened up and showered on us, and the thunder and lightning followed. With the devil's club now almost impassable, we instead slogged knee-deep through a freezing river for three hours. With much relief, we reached the vehicle around midnight. It was 6 a.m. when we finally returned home. Upon seeing me stumble through the door, my wife almost did not recognize me. She told me I looked dead, like a ghost. The truth is, a part of me had died on that mountain. How close was I to actual death up there? I don't know. I was terrified of bumping into an old grumpy grizzly bear. I was beyond exhaustion and hypothermic every time I stopped moving. To me, it felt close. Almost dying, in a way, gave way to new life. That hike taught me I could endure a new level of anything. I could be reborn. Pushing through mental doubts and fears however, provided a new perspective of what was possible, not just physically, but in life as a whole. Purposeful discomfort that takes us to the edges of what we thought was possible can redefine our potential while offering a whole host of other mental benefits, such as gratitude, self-confidence, patience, and trust. And finally, we come to the realization that we can't escape suffering, period, end of story, full stop. When we see we can endure it, we then know we can. And knowing we can endure suffering is how we free ourselves from it, not through the aforementioned conveniences. This is all to say we should change our perspective on the good, 
and bad of comfort and struggle. Just because it's easy for us doesn't mean it's good for us. And just because something is really hard to get through doesn't mean it's bad for us either. We create the depths of who we are and grow past the perceived limits of our potential through struggle. And when we adopt the mindset of our persistence through struggle is building our character, capability, and capacity in a positive way, we can change how we feel about it in the moment and toward the future challenges we will face. Well, thanks for sticking with me through that. That was a rather long blog. I have made this Masagi practice something that I do at least yearly. And I have found that, you know, first of all, it, it has to be different than, let's say, running a marathon. If you're a runner running a marathon and you've run like a, a 20K, you've run a half marathon, running a marathon is not quite a Masagi because it's something that is more or less attainable. You know, a true Masagi has you know, as de defined by Marcus Elliott, about a 50% chance of failure. Now, of course, you might have that in a marathon, but really where misogies become interesting is when you're doing something you don't normally do. For instance, uh, if you're a marathoner, what if you did a long distance paddleboard uh, and you'd only paddleboarded enough so you knew how to do it, but you had never tested the depths of your of your endurance and capability in a paddleboard. That's where you get yourself into these great opportunities to test your mind. And because it's un, it's more unpredictable, right? You're battling not just the physicality of it, you're battling the unpredictability of it. During that goat hunt when we were trekking down the mountain, I did not know when the storm went in. I did not know if we were going to bump into a grizzly bear. And those types of things alongside the physicality weighed on my mind. And I had to work through these those things. And honestly, I did a pretty shitty job. I was you know, whining a lot of the time. It was only on the other side of it that I really had the realization of, holy shit, like I can really endure a lot and come through a lot and be better for it on the other side. The other thing that's fantastic in the practice of Masagi is yes, doing some of them alone. I love that, you know, facing those inner demons yourself while you're out there pounding pavement or, or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. But if you do them with somebody else, there is this, this wonderful sense of camaraderie, mutual, you know, trust and respect, uh, kinship, you know, conscious co-creation that that comes when you do it with somebody else. And that can build enduring friendships. That can that can be really energizing. And it can give you something to look forward to, you know, with you know, with people that you're building community around in this space. And again, that can exist in endurance sports, you know, running clubs. Etc. But those are those are just you know some ways of looking at it, and I like to have a lot of fun. Like the other month, I went to a sand dune, and we we brought these weights, and we did a where I you know I didn't run on a sand dune and ever, so it was this this fantastically challenging experience, and as hard as the workout was that we gave ourselves on this sand dune with the weights that we brought, 
the hardest part because we had to bring all those weights i think two miles to where that dune was was the sheer and utter exhaustion of getting those weights back to the truck at which point it was like i didn't know if we were going to do it and after we'd you know we got them there and that was tiring and we'd done the workout which was you know just body shattering exhausting <laughs> you know crippling but on the way back it was like drop the weights you know break go 10 steps drop the weights break go 10 steps it was so utterly exhausting and i was so beaten and broken and then mentally to like only be able to go 10 steps at a time and then have to stop and the sun is baking uh, i mean that's where the real Masagi happened in that, that whole experience. And, and you just never know. So you just, you know, you have the fun of, of getting creative, creative. And, you know, the last thing I'll say on this point is that as it relates to the blog, not just the Masagi and being uncomfortable, you know, we forget because we pay for everything and we've chosen to outsource everything in our lives. And that convenience allows us to do other things. And, and that's a good thing. But a lot of stuff is free. Food is free or for the most part free, right? To grow a vegetable doesn't cost you anything but time, um, especially you know once you've, you've regenerated your soil and you've created um, an ecosystem where you know the soil in and of itself doesn't need to be, you know, topped up with expensive topsoil all the time. And, and, and so you can grow your own vegetables that solves one component of this comfort crisis. You can hunt and fish for your own food. And yes, there's the price of, you know, the gas or, or the rifle or the rod and the time to get there, but that food is otherwise free. And I, and I tell you, I promise you, it is so so rewarding to stick your hands in the earth and pull out vegetables right in your backyard that you grew. It is so, so rewarding to come home after seven both wonderful and fucking miserable days in the bush with a year's supply of clean protein that you know has no antibiotics, that you that you know how to reduce, you know, footprint and getting to your door. Um you know, it, it's just, it, there's something deeply fulfilling about that. Fishing is the same. And everybody I know who has adopted, you know, some component of these practices um, around food that, that they can do in their lives, they find it rewarding too. And they want more of it and more of it. And so I really encourage that. I really strongly encourage you to as much as you can, and this makes sense for your health, your body, your way of life, get uncomfortable, find ways to, to challenge yourself that, you know, again, are uncomfortable, but become just so fulfilling and rewarding. You won't regret it. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you. 
make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace.